was kind enough to show me that Pastor Scott left his message underneath the podium here. So I told him if things don't go well, I'll pull that one out and I'll preach last week's message again. So, hey, life's good. All right. You know, I was a training manager for many years, and I always told people they, they love PowerPoint and all these fancy stuff. And I said, just wait. One time it's not going to work. You better be prepared. So anyway, well, it's good to be with you this morning and uh, uh, filling in for Pastor Scott. And I uh, communicated with him this morning. They're doing well and uh, enjoying some, some time together and also some, a lot warmer than where we are this morning. So anyway, but they'll be coming back soon. Um, this morning, I titled a, uh, this message for me, it's called The Silent Killer. And I, when I get a, uh, an opportunity to, to teach and, and preach and things of that nature, I like to focus on things that I'm dealing with and things that the Lord is, is teaching me. So we're going to talk about that this morning from Psalm 32. And just if you would, take a look at Psalm 32 once again. And we're going to focus, just uh, look at the first five verses. And here, as again, as I said, here's David contemplating. And he's just considering these things. And he's meditating, just kind of, it's just thinking about this. And in verse 1, he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long, for the day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned to the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my, my, my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So to this morning, I want to just kind of go back to what I would call some of the basics of Christianity. And I mentioned just this idea of going back to the gospel. And how the gospel was something that moved and impacted David in his life as he was considering these things. So just from a start from a high level, um, let's see, did I go too far? Yep, I did. There we go, the beginning. So first of all, the text doesn't tell us explicitly the situation that led to David to write this psalm. We don't know what was going on in his life at this period of time. So we can't draw any inference from what was moving him to do this. It's just something had happened when he, he contemplated these things. Now, if you notice, as I put up here, it starts off with a jubilant praise. He's this idea that he says, you know, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven? There's a great blessing when our, when our sin is taken away. And he says, whose sin is covered. So it's, it's not only forgiven, it's covered. His idea, and we see, can't help but see Christ in this. But how blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute, or this idea, does not ascribe iniquity. In other words, God is not looking upon the person in their sin. They're looking at the, 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 the majesty of Christ in that person. It's an amazing thing. But then he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's interesting he says that. What he's saying is this. And whose spirit there's no lying about the sin. In other words, 
They're being transparent about it. They're, they're opening themselves up to the Lord. So he's saying there's, a, there's this idea, blessed is the person who is able to finally say, Lord, I've sinned. There's a blessing that happens there. They finally acknowledge and say, I've done wrong. And then the magnificence of forgiven. So he, we get this picture of the freedom that we have, um, this idea that, of the freedom in having our sins forgiven, being covered. But notice it's dealt, the sins are dealt with by God and David. We see that both of them, that the sin is dealt with by both us and God. And that has to happen as we consider what David is talking about. We see the joy of an iniquity not being imputed by the Lord and the freedom of not living, having to live under the scourge of the sin. And we know what that's like. The, the deceit of a double life. Now, I know that would never apply to anybody in here. And I don't know about you, but this morning we came in here. And it's like, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How was uh, your week? Great. How was your week? Fantastic. You know, and we keep going back and forth, right? Can you imagine if you ask somebody, they say, how you doing? Not well. Oh, that's good to hear. How was your week? Right? We go, it goes right by us. What if they said, I'm not doing well. I've got a terrible sin I'm dealing with. I'm struggling. And you know what probably your first reaction would be? Whoa. Uh, how do I get out of this situation? Right? But there's something happening. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more this morning. When we're entrenched in secret sin, we're living a deceitful life. When we have sin that we know is in our life and we refuse to do something about it, but we sit here and come to church and we act like everything's okay, we're living a double life. We're living in a life of deceit. I'm putting on a facade, a veneer. You know, I'm super Christian. I'm doing great. And I know when I'm saying that, I'm lying. Folks, I'm not doing great. I got things in my life that I need to... to, to to deal with before the Lord as we consider that. We present outwardly that we're pristine, that we're clean, this polished veneer, but in essence we are inwardly, we're filthy, we're disgusting, and we're full of shame because we won't deal with the things that God has put before us that need to be dealt with, the silent sins, the silent killers. This is exactly what the Lord condemned the Pharisees for. He said, hey, you're whitewashed tombs. You look really great on the outside. But inside, you're dead. And he said, remember, don't worry about the outside of the cup. Clean the inside. But folks, we come here, and we, we, we're all about the outside of the cup. And that's what David is dealing with. David's talking about the inside of the cup here. He's talking about the inside of the soul. The idea, as we see that, he's, when transgressions are forgiven, a weight is lifted off of us. Proverbs 13 says, and when we talk about this weight, it says the way of the transgressor, transgressor is difficult. It's hard. 
Now I can say, everybody in here, you can say amen to that. When you've lived in sin, it's hard. It's hard to put the veneer up all the time. It's hard not to show the cracks. It's hard to lie to people and say, I'm great, I'm fine. But inside, I sit there and listen to a message, and I'll hear something speak to me, and I'll say, oh, wow, that was from the Lord, whoa. How? And then 15 minutes later, it's out of my mind, and I'm back to putting on the veneer. The way of the transgressor is hard. We are no longer trying to cover our secret sin by making excuse for them or by pretending that we don't struggle and even fall prey to them. That's what David is saying. He's saying, blessed is the person who no longer tries to cover up their sin, for no longer making excuses for it, for no longer pretending that I'm okay. That's where the blessing comes. And that's what he's talking about. So some of the lessons. It's interesting as we consider this. Look at verse 3. What can David, what has David learned here? What is the Lord having us learn? In verse 3, and this is kind of a little paraphrase, he says, when I kept silent, of course, in the, in the context, when he kept silent about his sin, when he kept it to himself, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. What's he saying? My body was wasting away. We've all been there at times. We have this weight, and it, it's just tiresome to continue to put the veneer up. I'm getting tired of it. Through my constant groaning all day long. Where's that? It's interesting. When we, we're going to look at that groaning. Where did it come from? Notice next. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. What's he saying? For day and night your conviction was on me. I couldn't escape it. Lord, you show me this sin, and I refuse to deal with it, and it's weighting me down. And you won't let go of me. Remember what David said? Where can I go that you're not, God? He said, can I go to the... Can I go to heaven? Can I go to the depths of hell? I get up, I go to bed, you're there. Now David's saying, this is not good because I can't escape you and the weight of my sin is, is just killing me. But he still wouldn't deal with it. Then he says, my vitality. That's a fancy word, isn't it? Is your vitality taxed this morning? That's your physical and mental strength. The weight of his sin and the conviction from his, his father above was putting him to a point where he couldn't get rest. And I put up here, you think about it, um, we do the same things thinking we don't have to confess to God what we struggle with. So, you think about it, why we don't. We reason, say, well, he already knows. God already knows everything. He so already knows what I'm dealing with. Why do I have to sit and turn around and tell him? Or we use the excuse, wow, if I really was transparent, if people really knew what was going through my mind right now, I'd be ashamed. And I would have to bear the shame as we consider that. 
Shame or pride, the root of shame, keeps us from really confessing to God. We keep our head in the sand, right? Hey, I have, I can, I'll get over this. I'll stop. I made the decision. Today I'm stopping. I'm done. I don't have to worry about that sin anymore. And 15 minutes later, I'm picking up the phone, and I'm right back where, where it was. I can do it. Right, Tim? That's right. I say, I can do it. I'll deal with it. Or, you know what? It's not really all that bad. I'm not as bad as Brother Bill. Right? I start saying, I'm not as bad as that person. I don't know anything about Bill. Just an example. But I start comparison. Okay, this idea, we trick ourselves to believing it's not that, da- that bad by comparison thinking. At least I don't do this. At least I don't do that. As we consider. All these things uh, play right into the devil's um, hands. I put in here, sin thrives in darkness. You keep it dark, it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow until you reach a point where David was saying, Lord, I can't carry this anymore. My vitality is gone. As we consider, think about, as we consider the sin, thriving darkness, when we are silent before God and our family in Christ, then we give it all the fuel it needs to continue to grow. Silence equals growth. I have news for you. Apart from God, you are never, ever going to have victory over sin in your life. You can't make a decision on your own that's going to say, I'm done. That's not how it, God has designed it. So the effects. What does David say here? David admitted he was affected by his sin and his silence. Sin affects us physically. Sin affects us mentally. And sin affects us spiritually. Okay? The weight of sin, and you probably have experienced this, but the weight of sin... The weight of doing things against God, the weight of that can lead to depression, it can lead to ineffectiveness, and it can lead to mental slavery. God said the gospel would set us free. If that's true, which it is, then sin will keep us a slave. You have a choice to make. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, interesting. I want to, I'm going to share some facts with you. And I'm going to say there's probably some people in here that are affected by this this morning. But before I talk about it, I want to let you know there's deliverance in the gospel. Pornography, studies show it's the most rapid sin invading society and infiltrating the church today. Okay? It and also, it's no longer a sin that's predominantly uh, affected by men. Women comprise 30% of online pornography viewing in our country. 
Now, pornography's been, been shown to be linked to depression, anxiety, and they're showing, it's really interesting, that it re results in reduced cognitive function, just like someone who's a hardcore drug addict. It sears the conscience. Research shows that porn alters the brain's plasticity. And what that means is your ability of your brain to function and to make decisions and all this. Think about it, it's like uh, the mental gymnastics that your brain does. Continuing viewing pornography takes that away, just like a drug user. Okay? Pornographic sin kept silent has an effect on the body and literally causes deterioration and wasting away of brain function. That's what, da that's what David's talking about. When I kept silent about my sin, my body, my mind, my vitality was sapped. That's an example of what he's talking about. One renowned Christian recalled, Physically, I remember feeling sick when I first began watching pornography. The crazy thing is after the sickness passed, I went back to consuming it, and the sick feeling was overridden and never came back. Because brain function is changed. Um, I wanted to share with you, uh, just, it's, these are some statistics. And I think you'll find them shocking. And parents, um, I hope your ears are perking up. Uh, there's several studies here recently that was put together by an organization. So I want you to just get, get, think about this for a minute. There are more than 28,000 people watching pornography this very second as you read these words. Webroot found that around 200,000 Americans are considered addicted to pornography and 40 million regularly go to porn sites and 35% of all internet searches involve pornography. 35%, think about all the internet searches going on, it happen today, 35% of them are linked to that. Okay. Even more disturbing is that nearly three quarters of teens have said they've watched pornography and 15% said they have watched it before reaching the age of 11. According to a report from Common Sense, nearly 60% 60, 60 said they came across it accidentally. And 31% disturbingly said they watched it with friends at school. The dangers of pornography, especially for minors, is that it's, there's, there's plenty of research to indicate that it's addictive. Now, I won't go through all the details, but you gotta remember, when, when the younger brains are in that, in their teen years, that's when their, their brain functions are setting in. You ever wondered why we sit there and we see they put drag queens in the schools? You ever wonder why they want those, those, those terrible books in the library? Did you know, and this is interesting, do you know who is behind most of those efforts to get those things in the school? It's the porn industry. Why? Because if they, they shock the kids at those ages, then they've got them. It's so easy to go when something pops up on your phone. Yeah. 
And I want, it's really interesting as I go through the facts how society has changed. The number one thing leading to divorce today is social media. Going back and looking at what I missed out on when I was younger. You know what number two is? It's not finances anymore. Pornography. Now, I use that as an example of what David is talking about. But you can fill in the blank with whatever sin that you're dealing with um, as we consider. Let me get back to my notes here. So, for the Christian, keeping silent about unconfessed sin brings conviction. David said that day and night, his hand was, God's hand was heavy upon him. This was the case because David had some, at this point, some unconfessed secret sin. Okay? And what does it mean to have God's heavy hand upon us? I think you've experienced it if you've been in Christ, where you've held back. Or when God opened your eyes to the gospel, you realized there was a sin burden that was undone. That's the weight of God's hand upon us. It's the conviction of knowing I've been transgressed against God and likely others around me. Simply said, it's the constant guilt of failure, knowing I let God down and I let others down. The constant guilt of failure is God's heavy hand upon me. As a Christian, this conviction is from the Spirit and showing God's mercy upon us. And I put up here, you know, you think about it, when's the real danger point in all this? Is when you continue in, you resist the conviction of God, and guess what's going to happen? If you're truly one of God's, he's got two choices he's going to make. He's going to remove that conviction and let you go all the way into it and learn some horrible lessons. Or, if you bear his name, he will remove you and take you home because of the guilt that you're defaming the name of Christ. If you're not one of his, stand by. Because the conviction that you felt passed on, you're going to feel it again someday. And you're going to bear the weight of the full weight of the guilt of your sin. I implore you, today is the day of salvation. Don't get to the point where you override conviction and you sear your conscience. This is a very dark and destructive place that leads to unrestraint and unfettered wickedness. Yeah, you might think I'm able to hang, hang on to it right now. I'm going to tell you, if you resist God's hand of conviction, you will go places you never thought you will. We've all seen testimony of people who have done things that have astounded us. For the Christian, any unconfessed, uncovered sin brings physical, mental, and spiritual weakness. David said, my vitality, my emotional and physical strength have been sapped, was drained away. Notice what he says. If you look back then on, on here on, excuse me, <coughs> verse 4, he says, my vitality, my strength was turned into the drought of summer. Anybody ever been in the desert? You know the, you know the lie they always tell you when you go to the desert? Yeah, it's 110 degrees, but it's dry heat. Let me tell you what. Turn your oven on to about 120. Put your head in there. Experience some dry heat and let me know how that feels for you. 
Okay, that's what David's talking about. He's talking about, if you look at this, what he's saying, it's like I am working in the desert with wool suit on with no water. That's how heavy God's hand is upon me. My vitality was turned to the drought of summer. Or this idea, it's like having a fever and being in the heat of the desert. That's what he's saying, literally. I've got a high fever in the heat of the desert. How does this literal heaviness of sin and draining vitality carry around sins play out in our lives? How, does this, how do we see this? Okay. We become drained because our minds are consumed with covering the sin. We battle the thoughts. We sit there saying, I don't want to do it again. I can't do this again. I can't fall into it again. You hear the problem? I, I, I. That's what David's saying. We became drained. We struggle of telling ourselves, I'm never going to do this again. Yet often within hours, I'm right back into it. The oppressive depression or guilt are like a cloud over David's head. And it can be with us as well. It saps your vitality. The bondage you feel drains your energy. That's what David is saying. But there's hope. The victory. Okay? First of all, the good news. The gospel. God can deliver us from the oppression of sin. Okay? That's what David's talking about. Yes, our sin is forgiven, but David's talking about... God's lifted the oppression from me. And that's what he's celebrating. He can, we can do this if, if we humble ourselves and confess and forsake our sin and transgressions so that God can sanctify us. He can take that once we finally say, God, I, I'm done with it. I'm bearing it all. I can't do this anymore. Then God, can say, God comes in with the Spirit, and he uses that opportunity to make us more like Christ. That's what David is saying. The great transaction. We, but this requires us to be transparent before God okay, and before man. Okay? Now, I, I want you to hear that. I have to be transparent before God and man. That's what David's talking about. Now, this second part is very difficult, being transparent with others. But I want to talk a little bit about sin and transgression. Okay? David gives us the key that is the beginning of victory, this idea. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. Okay? And that goes back to, if you remember, when David was confronted by Nathan the prophet about the great sin he committed... When David went before the Lord, he said, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight. That's the beginning. Likewise, we have to agree that our primary offense is against the holy God. Now, that sounds simple. But sometimes it's very difficult for us. So recently, I went uh, last week I went to be, uh, be with my mother, and uh, their church was having a revival. And the preacher shared a story. I want you to look, get a hold of this. Okay? There was a, he, was, he said, had to be very careful because if he did, divulged too much, people would probably recognize the individual. 
So he said, but I want to tell you what happened when I was counseling. This person was going, you know, come in, I need to confess something. And it was pretty difficult confession. And as he, the, as he was counseling, the, the pastor kept saying, well, you know somebody saw you. He kept saying, you know somebody saw you, right? Someone saw you do that. And this man became consumed with knowing who saw me. Who saw me? He demanded to know who saw me. And he said, well, Jesus saw you. And the man said, phew, I thought it was somebody that knew me. Now, folks, that's a true story. Now, before we shake our heads and laugh and things, you know what? That's how we live. That's how you are today. I guarantee it. Is which would shame you more? If I made you stand up here and confess to everybody the things that you've done, the sins you're dealing with now, would that embarrass you more than knowing that I've offended a holy God? That man just admitted it. I think a lot of times we think the same way. You consider that. Before we act smugly and judge this man, how often do we act the same way? Only we just don't say it. As long as the people at church don't know what I do, I'm good. I'm okay. I'm not thinking about there's one that sees me and knows it. Um, I got a warning for you as a Christian this morning. The time's coming when you're going to have that shown. So, one talk, David talks about sin, transgression, and iniquity. When we sin, we miss the mark. Unconfessed sin leads to more sin. When we transgress, now we do it willingly. When I know I'm not supposed to go to that, go to that thing on my, my phone or my, my device, but I choose to, now I'm transgressing. So think about it like this. The first time that thing pops up and I begin to focus on it and I, whatever happens and I look at that or wherever it is, social media, whatever, I dwell on it, I'm sinning. When I, when I willfully go after it, I'm transgressing. And when I end up in iniquity, it, I continue without seeking repentance. I'm done. I'm bathed in it. It's a core part of who I am. No one will ever know, but it's what I do. It's what I think. Okay? There's no desire for repentance. We miss God's standard, willfully disobey, and then I, I have no desire, real desire to repent. Okay? And that's what David's talking about. We turn it to iniquity. It's a solution. This is the beautiful part of verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave. He forgave the iniquity of my sin. Okay? We have to be like David. David's at the right point now. After he's contemplated this, I'm going to I'm going to confess. And the beautiful part of verse 5 it says God forgave him 
the iniquity. Really, what that, the, word, the best word there would be the guilt. The guilt of his sin. Okay? David did not write, God forgave my sin and transgression. In other words, we never want to say, God said it was okay that you did that. He forgave the guilt. God is poised and ready to forgive so that we no longer have the heavy weight of sin. Now notice, what David experienced is true deliverance. Everything he described in verse 3 and 4 has been eradicated. He no longer has the oppression. He no longer has the weight of God's judgment. So, how does it work here? The deliverance for you and me. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we lie. And the truth is not in us. We have to acknowledge the sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess. But notice the third step. We pass by this one a lot of times. James 5, 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Confessing to another believer. Okay. That idea. Okay. And John 8, 11, when Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, however, go and sin no more. That's repentance. Now, don't, don't let me tell you, I'm confessing the sin and I'm done with it. The next question should be, have you removed the provision for it to occur? Show me your repentance by action, not words. That's what Jesus talked about, of cutting off the hand if it offends. Okay? It's interesting in James when he talks about that, when he gets to verse 19, he says, by the way, it's good if this happens that you restore a brother. Interesting as we consider. So now... <coughs> Barriers to confessing to others. Pride, shame or embarrassment, fear, self-sufficiency. I can do this. I'll talk to the Lord, but I can handle this. And lack of a trustworthy Christian friend. My question to you, are you a trustworthy friend? Okay. So, confessing to another. Find a trustworthy person. Um, do others see you as trustworthy or do they see you as a gossip or a talebearer? I don't need to remind you what the word says about gossips, right? I don't need to remind you about a talebearer. The Lord hates those. My question to you is, will people come up to you and confess and use you as a, as a help to overcome sin? Or would they be afraid that you'd tell somebody else? What would your track record say? Here's a thought. Try for a week not to talk about another person unless that person's there. Hmm, interesting. Most of us might have, or some of us might not have much to talk about. I don't know. A spiritual, find a spiritually mature believer. You don't want to find somebody new in the faith if you're going to, Interact with them. Appropriate relationship. This is important. Um, this gender considerations, age considerations, relationship level. You know what? I mentioned coming in the door today. How you doing? 
And say you barely know this person. Well, I'm doing terrible. I'm going I'm to pour my whole life out to you. What's your first reaction? Whoa. Why? It's because you haven't earned that level of relationship. Right? But if your close friend comes to you and says, I'm not doing well, let me tell you why. What's your response then? Let's sit down and talk. Why? You've earned that level of relationship. You don't go up to a total stranger and pour your life out. Okay? So you find that person. The right setting. I would tell you, folks, shocker, doing this during the church services or between, that ain't it. It's going to have to happen in a, t a setting that's appropriate. You can't sit out in the hallway and talk about some, some meaty things when everybody else is running around. Okay? And here's a big one. The discussion needs to be limited to the required details. Have you ever heard a testimony when someone goes on for 15, 20 minutes about how sinful their life was before Christ? And they give you all the details? You know what? That's not right. It makes people think about things they should never think about. You can actually be a trip for other believers. Okay, so we find a trustworthy person uh, as we consider this. Oh, I lost my page here. Hello, hello. Now, it's interesting when I talk about limiting required details. Galatians 6, remember it talks about restoring a brother, says be careful lest you become tempted as well. So you need to make sure that um, it's just enough so a person understands without causing a temptation. Now, someone comes up to you, and they want, they need to share something. How do you respond? Listen intently. Ask questions. Don't go to, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Let me tell you about the time I had that same problem 20 years ago. Okay? Let me tell you about the, you know, the, the, the operation I had. Whatever. It's about them, not you. Don't judge. Okay? Let scripture be the judgment, not you. Careful with your advice or direction. Why do I say that? They just might do it. Okay? I had a situation where a man came to me and confessed a heinous sin. And I said, have you told your wife? He said, no, I probably ought to. I said, yes, you ought to. I did that out of reaction. He went home, told his wife, called me, said she kicked me out of the house. I was stunned because I gave flippant advice without prayer and taking time to go through it with the man. He did what I said, and now I left carnage. Be careful. Encourage with scripture. Pray with them. Pray for them. Folks, this isn't an event. This is a relationship. Follow-up, accountability. You say, why do I need to confess to another believer? Accountability. Accountability is a powerful thing. Now, permission to share. Do I have your permission to share this with pastor? Do I have permission to share this with my wife? Okay. If you don't get permission, then you don't have the, the right to go telling somebody else. However, 
if you're going to confess something that is pretty heinous, keep in mind there might be some legal ramifications. If you come up and tell me you're molesting children, I'm going to guarantee you I'll be working with you the best I can, but there's also going to be a phone call to the authorities. So I need to tell you that right up front. Okay? So again, keep in mind, if, if you've got, there's, there are some consequences to sin that can't be dealt with, with just between two people. Okay? All right. Mindful of immediate consequences as we consider. Keep the trust. However, remember, greater sin requires greater consequence. You don't have to continue to be weighted down by the cycle of sin. I have good news for you. you just like David, you don't have to be weighted down. However, hiding the sin in our lives only gives nourishment for it to grow. So you got a choice this morning. Um, I think I could probably say this safely. Folks, you can look at me. I'm a broken man. I got things in my life I'm dealing with. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of dealing with them. 60 years of trying to work on things and putting up the veneer, I'm just tired. I'm David. I'm tired. And folks, I know looking out at you, I know you're carrying some baggage. You got a choice to make today? Are you going to continue to carry it, put up the veneer, I'm good, everything's good, or is today the day when actual revival will start with you? Revival starts with repentance. You want to see revival in this land? Start yourself. Appeal to God. Here's the thing. You know what I find amazing and God convicted me of? All the things that have happened in the world the last two weeks, I get all angry and upset. I can't believe what they did to those poor people in Israel. But you know what? I look at those other people and I'm ready to, I'm ready to have their heads. But God said, well, what about you? How come you don't have the same passion about what's wrong with you that you have with other people? Mm. So you got a choice to make this morning. Are you going to continue in it? Or are you finally going to deal with it like David did? I want to read this. I'm going to close with this, this story. It was an AFA, a recent AFA magazine, American Family Association. <clears throat> this may describe you. It described me. Several years ago, a man in a group I was conducting made this comment. Except for this one area of my life, I'm a pretty good guy. This one area he was referring to meant being a pedophile who had molested hundreds of young boys. My first thought upon hearing his comment was one of anger and potential rage. How dare you make such a comment when you've ruined countless lives? In actuality, this man believed this statement was true. This faulty belief was reinforced through compartmentalization. I compartmentalized my life. This one part just isn't good. But the rest of it, I'm pretty good. 
compartmentalization of his sin and a works-based theology. I have thought this about this statement through the years and realized this is how most Christians live out their lives. We justify and minimize our favorite sin while comparing it to more serious sins. We think it's not like I'm stealing from orphans and widows. We compartmentalize it away from the process of sanctification and avoid scripture that makes us uncomfortable. Even sometimes when messages from their pastor makes them uncomfortable. Okay? We perform works-based mathematics to balance the books to minimize our shame and guilt. I must be a pretty good guy for God to use me in this, in this work. I believe we all have this one area in our lives. Every now and then we'll get caught, we'll feel convicted, we'll hear a sermon on your secret sin and feel bad for a few days. Soon we think, except for this one area, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good husband. I'm a pretty good wife. I'm a pretty good son. I'm a pretty good daughter. I teach Sunday school. I'm a pastor. I lead the worship services and it goes on and on and on. I'm pretty good because I do all those things. God uses me, but don't deal with this one area in my life. I won't let it go. I'm challenging today. Let it go. You want to experience the freedom that David experienced? Let it go. As Christians have historically focused on the sins of the world and spent little time on dealing with our sins, it's time for us to deal with its plague of habitual and casual sins. Revival begins when we stop comparing our sins to others and place our sins before a holy, pure, and righteous God. We are called to pursue holiness, not compromise. Jesus did not redeem us so we could be freed to repeatedly commit our habitual favorite sin every day. He redeemed us and freed us from the bondage of sin. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this text that David brought us. How we see the beautiful picture of us just finally saying, no more. I, I can't carry the weight any longer. I pray for us this morning, Lord. Search our hearts. Clean our hearts out. Help us to let go of those things that must be let go of that dishonor you and fill us with your spirit for things that will give you glory. And Father, if there be one today that you've lifted your hand of conviction because it's been so long, give them hope this morning. Bring them back. Bring them back to the cross. Lord, I pray for us as believers. Help us to live holy, sanctified lives, please. And Lord, if there be one here this morning that does not know you, that they, they carry the weight of wrongdoing for many years, let it go for them. Open their eyes to the beauty of Christ dying on the cross, paying the penalty for sin. Lord, I pray that we would not go out of this building today the same as we walked in. Please, I implore you, have your way. And we ask it all for the glorious 
in the glorious name of Jesus, amen.